1: You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth.
0: Hello again, free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. This week, we welcome back Scott Horton to the show after he joined us in 2019 to talk about Julian Assange. In this episode, we talked to the anti-war veteran about the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia. We also discussed Yemen and the atrocities the U.S. is engaged in there. Now, Scott really doesn't need an introduction, as he's been a liberty and anti-war activist since the mid-90s. But for those who aren't familiar with his work, Scott is the editorial director of Antiwar.com. He is also the managing director at the Libertarian Institute. He's a radio host, a frequent guest on Kennedy Nation, which is a show on the Fox Business Channel. He's also an author of several books, which we discussed near the end of the conversation, and has done over 5,700 interviews since 2003. This episode is absolutely a must listen if you need an explanation about the history of the conflict within Ukraine, and if you're seeking an assessment about the current geopolitical environment. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to the podcast. We appreciate you making the time to talk with us today. I was fortunate enough to shake your hand at FloatFest early this year in April, and Matt and myself have long respected your work with Antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. So you're very much an expert on international relations, and it will be great to get your perspective on a few current events relating to Ukraine, Russia, hopefully Yemen, and the geopolitical chess piece moves the US is currently engaging in. I love to separate fact from fiction and really try to provide a nuanced, yet accurate, non-hyperbolic look at what is really going on. So with that said, just a few days ago, we aggregated an article in Zero Hedge entitled, Largest Deployment of 101st Airborne Since World War II Practicing for War Near Ukraine Border. I also made a tweet with a similar sentiment, but both got a lot of pushback from armchair experts who claim that it isn't true and that the 101st was there in June of this year and they regularly train in Europe. I also heard that the first time in Europe since World War II claim was initially a claim made by the mainstream establishment to further push propaganda on Americans. So can you provide some clarity? And if it's true, should we consider this an act of escalation by the U.S.?
2: Well, I have no idea where the 101st Airborne has been, you know, This year or last year or in the last 10 years. But uh, as far as a major escalation, yes, of course it is Uh, that they sent, you know, I don't know how many, but a division of troops there to Ukraine's border. I mean, they haven't crossed it yet, but it was meant to be a provocation. I mean, they announced, we're here, we're ready to fight tonight and all of this. So that's on top of what, look, I mean, even the New York Times has reported repeatedly. We got special operations forces and CIA on the ground helping coordinate the entire war and have spent, you know, the official version of this whole thing is we spent tens of billions of dollars pouring weapons into this thing. And the lawyers say, oh, well, we are co-belligerents Just the PR people say that we're not and hope that the Russians continue to accept that, even though they have said, well, we consider you co-belligerents in the war, meaning American targets outside of Ukraine are potentially up for grabs already. Imagine if the Russians had announced, we're spending tens of billions of dollars to back the Sunni-based insurgency against the Americans in Iraq, pouring weapons in because, well, we just want to weaken the Americans, do everything we can to send them home in body bags. Right, we'd have gone a nuclear war with Russia under Bush and Cheney if they had done that. By the way, it was our allies, the Saudis, who were bankrolling the Sunni-based insurgency against us. <laughs> but anyway, um, the fact of the matter is, America is, the U.S. government, is about 95% responsible for this entire war. I mean, the truth is, the war started in 2014. I and mean, what Putin did in his escalation in February was, I'm, I mean, I totally disagree with it. I think it was absolutely... A crime, I mean, for him to do. It was essentially, you know, I don't know how you measure it qualitatively or quantitatively. It was a massive escalation of the war from his side, but it wasn't really the beginning of it. The beginning of it was when under Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden led the coup d'etat to overthrow the government of the democratically elected government of Ukraine in February of 2014. And then then the, very soon after that, the new coup d'etat junta with no legitimacy whatsoever declared a war on terrorism and attacked the people of the East who refused to accept their new authority. And America has been essentially paying for that ever since then. Now, Obama was afraid to send in weapons because he didn't want to unnecessarily provoke the Russians worse than he already had when he sent in plenty of tanks and, you know, everything non-lethal that he could. I mean, pardon me, I meant to say trucks and, you know, whatever other gear and night vision goggles and everything, you know, scopes, but not rifles and whatever he could, short of that line. And then when Trump came in, in order to prove what a Russian spy he wasn't, he dumped billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine. Get this, you guys might remember, I know it sounds crazy, but the third time that a president of the United States was impeached was when Donald Trump temporarily held up an arms deal to Ukraine, pouring weapons in for the purpose of causing a war, of preventing the implementation of the Minsk II peace deal of 2015 and keeping the war going, which was John McCain's foreign policy. But since Donald Trump's got a couple of IQ points to rub together, he just let himself be led and and you can hear his son say, Yeah, look, see, we're pouring all these weapons in. Now let's see, you call us pro-Russian traitors. You can't call us pro-Russia now, like these people. I mean, give me a break, dude. Anyway, so um, you know, long answer to your short question here. As far as um the first time the hundred and first airborne has been here or there since whenever. I don't know about that. Um But uh was that the headline on antiwar.com? I don't write for zero head, but if that was the headline on antiwar.com, then I'm sure that they had just gotten that from what the New York Times said or whatever it
1: was. It was like
2: it was the New York Times who said it. You know, it was a massive escalation when they sent them, and it was meant to be a provocation for that matter, you know?
1: It's been a provocation for a decade or more, you know. We've been the NATO, especially.
2: Look, their line is, whatever I do to you is essentially, like, even if I get right up to where my nose is touching yours, it's still me just telling you that you better not do anything aggressive, dude. No matter what I do, it's, you know, or even say, you know, we live in the neighborhood. And not only am I, like, forming a gang that is avowedly against you guys and meant to contain you guys, but I'm giving guns to all your neighbors. I'm, I'm pouring weapons in. You got you and your five crips, and I'm building up an army of bloods. And now we're standing on your front lawn, and we're going, no, man, it's purely defensive. If you have a problem with that, that's because you're a tyrant and a tyranny and aggressive, revanchist power, and you want to come and take over all of the whole neighborhood. And that's why we have to stand on your front lawn to prevent you from doing that. I mean, anyone from outside can see who's the aggressor there. But when you live here, you're supposed to just drink this Kool-Aid, and join this ridiculous cult of the American national security state and pretend that you can't see what you can see with your own goddamn eyes. I and mean, they've been saying for 30 years. Hey, yeah, we are extending our military alliance right to Russia's borders, but they know that it's only a defensive alliance. So if they claim to be concerned about it, one, they're probably just lying as an excuse to be aggressive or two what the hell are they gonna do about it anyway? We won the Cold War and Russia's a beaten shell of what it used to be and so tough. And that's been said repeatedly by people in the government. You know, Joe Cirincione will go down in history as uh, the greatest agent of Russia in America, worse than Walter Durante, representing Vladimir Putin's point of view no matter what. Um, He made it perfectly clear that in the Obama years, he would tell the State Department people, hey, putting anti-missile missiles in Poland, this is an unnecessary provocation against the Russians. We should not be doing this. And they would ridicule those concerns and say, look, the Russians have no reason to be concerned. Therefore, they have no right to be concerned. Therefore, any concerns that they express are completely contemptible and laughable. And there's no reason that we should have to listen to them or care about what they say. William Perry, Bill Clinton's secretary of defense, said the same thing. We would just write off their concerns as, one, they're unreasonable concerns. Come on. Everybody knows we're, we're the nicest guy in the world. We'd never do anything to you. And two, what are you going to do about it anyway? That's what I thought. We were not such a nice guy. But that's the way they played it.
1: That's exactly. Played. I mean, how would the U.S. Like, US American citizens feel if, for the last 30 years after being promised the— the exact opposite would happen that russia was gobbling up territories in canada and mexico and they started putting missile systems you know <laughs> all along the borders and installing these complex weapon systems that could strike in in under 10 minutes and take out our capital and how would how would they feel if we had if russia was training black ops along the mexican border with you know with the, whatever the the russian equivalent to the cia is right now you know if, <clears throat> if they were training all these troops and or special operations to to carry out covert military acts against the united states <laughs> the blind spot in the american consciousness is fuck, is mind-blowing that, that, that they're able to to see you know that on, only see that russia has invaded ukraine and not every fucking thing else that has led up to that from this point on you know what what do you think causes that do you i mean like i'm not talking to i'm not asking to put a tinfoil hat on right now but like like obviously there's this massive propaganda machine but what do you think leads to this massive blind spot in the american consciousness that is unable to see the entire history that it's allowed this and provoked this conflict that could fucking wipe us wipe out humanity as we know it
2: well look i mean i think we're all raised on this most kind of weird perverted form of patriotism in america where you know, the way I learned it in school was we're free because we have the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The rest of the people in the world, they don't have rights because they're not Americans. Americans have rights because we're Americans. And so really, like if you live somewhere else in the world and our government kills you, like those are just the breaks. You don't really have the right to not be killed. It's, it's not really racism, it's nationalism, you know, but it's, It's the same, essentially the same kind of conception as having like a racial superiority thing that, you know, the idea that any European can do anything to an African and it could never be a sin because of whatever rationalization or whatever. It's essentially the same as that. When I was a kid, I don't know if they do this as much anymore, but um, you'd hear about a plane crash and they'd go, a plane went down today in Egypt. Five Americans (laughs) were aboard and and they wouldn't even say the total they wouldn't it's not like they would go 500 people were killed including three americans they would just go three americans were killed and never even mind how many other people cuz they just don't count <laughs> and um and that's so, and look also and maybe all cultures are like this we're just men you know we like to fight and we like to watch other people fight and what have you all of this stuff and so then when the president says that it's okay for us to violate that commandment that says you can't kill anyone, but the, the government passes the olive green loophole, and the, all of our enemies are Hitler loophole, which says that, of course, we can kill. You think God would say that it's wrong to destroy the Wehrmacht? Shut up. So we're always the heroes, and they're always the Nazis, and it's always the loophole in thou shalt not kill. And my own personal experience, when George H.W. Bush said, we can burn all the Iraqis and we can have fun doing it. I loved it. I was 14, 15, freshman in high school, and I knew it was wrong. I knew the Republicans were corrupt. I knew they were horrible, but I was a sociopath and I did not care. I just like fighter jets and explosions and loud noises and stuff. The same as our whole culture was so caught up in Iraq war one. What a phenomenon that was operation yellow ribbon, the way that they whipped everybody into that. And as someone who was into it and cynically, so right. It wasn't like I believed in the Republicans. I just wanted to see some explosions. It didn't give a damn about some Arabs in some faraway place that what was happening was HW Bush was saying it's okay to indulge in evil. It's okay to, you know, to uh, engage, to to um, indulge in your bloodlust, and and so we don't just have to like test bombs on a range somewhere. We have to actually do something fun with them. And you hear soldiers, people talk like this. I had a guy, a pilot in my cab, was telling me, "Look, man, my job. He supposedly was uh, patrolling the no-fly zone. He may not have even been a pilot. He may have just been in the air force and was like pretending, but." I know that he was echoing essentially what they were saying, stationed in Saudi, trolling the no-fly zone over Iraq, and said, look, my job is turning these people into hamburger meat, and it's fun to do it. I bomb them, and I kill them, and you're damn right. That's the job, man. That's why I'm a pilot. I don't care who it is down there. That's somebody else's job, deciding who I bomb. Me, I turn them to hamburger meat, and I have a good time doing it, too, and me and all my buddies, too, and... You know, listen to the soldiers tell their stories of the war. Many of them. They're dying to get their Hell first yeah. kill. The idea they're going to go to battle. They're going to go deploy to a war. And even be like outside the wire out there. You know, maybe there's special operations or something. Where they're like definitely out there engaging the enemy as best they can. But then if they don't get a chance to kill somebody. Or look at the Australians. Where they're just outright murdering Afghans. Just take an old man out back and shoot him in the head. It's whatever it is because you've got to get bloodened because that's how a boy becomes a man. They've already, you know, made the transition from one point of view to another about whether murder is wrong. It's not when you're deployed to Afghanistan. What would really be wrong would be going home to Australia without a kill. And, you know, I'm just referring to that because we got a lot of firsthand accounts from the Australian Special Forces there. There are plenty of war crimes by Americans, too. And a lot of them are in fools there, and there's more than a handful in there
1: certainly um, and when i was in when i was in the marine corps we would end every platoon meeting with second platoon praying for war you know like it was that's what we yeah
2: <laughs> and look in a way that's that's okay in a very limited sense i mean I'm, I'm an anarchist i don't believe in this stuff at all but like all other things being equal you're gonna have a state and you're gonna have a military you presumably want your marines to be effective but the problem is Effective at what? Your job is supposed to be sitting on your base doing nothing or training all day for a day that never comes unless it really does. And if America's attacked, then fine, Marines, go and defend us. But, of course, that's not what's going on here. America, everyone say it with me. You all know Mm -hmm. the slogan. We are number one. America is the superpower. And no one else is. We're not a humble, commercial, temporary, limited constitutional republic over here minding our own business. America's the world empire. America inherited two-thirds of the world after World War II. The commies got one. And now the Americans want all of the rest of what they got to, what's left, you know, of Russia and China. And that's what this is about. Go back and read the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of this conversation about what we're doing with Russia. You see the same thing going back to Alfred Mckinder, the British theorist and all of that. The worst crisis in the world would be in a permanent alliance between Germany and Russia, because then how do these essentially naval powers, Britain and or America rule Eurasia? If Russia and Germany are working together to keep us locked out of Eastern Europe. And so when Angela Merkel said, yeah, we want to do this Eurasian home. They went, no, not that. A peace pipeline that goes from Russia straight to Germany without cutting through Ukraine first and makes Germany that much more dependent on Russia. And of course, you guys hear the way that they portray this is this is the blackmail pipeline by which Russia will always enslave Germany and this and that. And we have to break that before it's too late. Why would the Germans enter a deal to enslave themselves to Russia? That's not what it was. And, of course, the British and the Americans are wrong that the worst thing in the world that could happen would be a permanent alliance between Germany and Russia. The worst two things that ever happened ever was war between Germany and Russia. The last time it happened, I mean, and I know you got to throw in China versus Japan and all this too, but something like 60 million people died in that war. Maybe more than that. And it was essentially for the British to make sure that the Western powers still have access to Eastern Europe. Now, if that doesn't make any sense for England, this crappy little island off the northwest coast of Europe, to be the dominant power in Eastern Europe, how does it make sense for us to be the dominant power in Eastern Europe? The middle part of North America. And we're willing to do anything,
1: anything to prevent Germany and Russia from just getting along. Including wiping out the human race with nuclear annihilation. (laughs) Or
2: marching us right to the brink of it and telling each other, don't worry, it'll be fine. Yeah. That's the worst that could happen.
0: Speaking of which, what, Scott, in your estimation, is the likelihood that this conflict would have been over a couple months after it started if the US and other countries within the global community didn't arm, equip, and send billions of dollars to ukraine i know i've heard you speak on this topic before but uh, could you maybe provide some context to our audience who hasn't really been paying as close of attention on just how long ago this could have ended without the u.s involvement
2: yeah i mean look the americans could have negotiated in good faith in the first place and prevented the war but then once the war broke out people remember that they were negotiating the turks were hosting the talks and um they were having great success and and Zelensky. Uh, the president of Ukraine had indicated a willingness to negotiate neutrality. In other words, to enshrine it in their constitution, that they're not going to try to join NATO anymore and that they were willing to negotiate over Crimea and the Donbass. And that essentially the idea would be that they would actually implement Minsk too. They would recognize that Crimea is a lost cause. That ship is sailed, that belongs to Russia again now and forever um, or for the indefinite future. And then negotiate over the Donbass. I don't know if that meant negotiate their hand over to Russia or if it just meant, um, maybe only part of it. I think they had suggested at one point they would go back to the lines, wherever the lines were on February the 24th. Well, that's two days into the war when the Russians occupied much of the Donbass, but not all of it, but that would be, you know, part of Luhansk and part of Donetsk. So, um, That was where it was at. And we know this from Ukrainian Pravda, which is very pro-Ukrainian government point of view. It's not Russian Pravda, totally different organization. Um, They have two very in-depth reports about this that said that Boris Johnson came to town in March, pardon me, in April, and told the Ukrainians not to deal with Russia. And that if you make this deal with Russia, then America and Britain will cut off all support for you and make sure NATO does too.
1: There was a package on the table. Remember Dmitry Peskov announced that Moscow was going to end the invasion immediately if they just agree to they can they stay Ukraine. They just don't join NATO and they hand over to donbass That's it. Like, and the Donbass wants to go to Russia. That's why they they're the fucking that's why they're the Donbass region. you know it, it, and then we actively intervened in that and said, no, no peace.
2: <laughs> that's right. And then we know too from Fiona Hill, who's the high priestess of the war party who admitted against interest in foreign affairs magazine that yes, this was true and further verified that they had a deal worked out in principle. This is the way she put it. In other words, they had shook hands and said, okay, we'll meet you back here tomorrow and sign that kind of thing. They were very close to having a deal. And, um, and Boris Johnson, by the way, uh, bragged about this in a phone call to Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. and, put it in the readout officially on the British prime minister's website. And then I told Macron that I just got back from telling Zelensky, he better not make a deal. That's all in there. That's not the exact quote, but very close to that.
1: Yeah. I learned Confirming. that from Dave DeCamp.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Dave DeCamp. got his act together for sure. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then I think uh, Biden himself confirmed it as well. Biden went to Brussels to a NATO meeting right at that same time and said, uh, no, this is going to be a very long war and we're not looking forward to negotiating right now and whatever, threw his own wet blanket on it then. So, yeah, and and look, I mean, they've said repeatedly, um, this was a funny little thing for what it's worth. The Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense both said the goal is to weaken Russia to the point that the government falls. Or I guess... Lloyd Austin had said to weaken them to the point that they can never pose this kind of threat to another neighboring state ever again, which, what does that mean? As long as they have a standing army, then, (laughs) then, you know, what are we going to do, like the um, pastoral plan for Germany and just deindustrialize them and occupy them forever kind of thing? Or what are they talking about? (laughs) Um, And then Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said we're going to weaken them so badly that the government falls, that Putin falls. Um, they had also bragged about that to Niall Ferguson, the British imperialist writer uh, who wrote about it for Bloomberg. Then, um, but they had both officially said the secretary of state and the secretary of defense both had officially said it. Then the Biden administration put out a story saying, well, we're not saying that. And they they've been chastised. They got out a little ahead of themselves and shouldn't have said that. And we're taking that back. But then Like a week later, they put out a story that said, nah, that really is the policy. We just had to, after we said it, we said it so loud, we wanted to put out a thing saying that we were walking it back to just make it a little softer. But no, we meant it. That's still what we're doing. You know, that was in the Washington Post where they walked back the walk back. And they're saying essentially that they're, they want to see Russia lose this war so badly that the Putin regime completely falls apart. That Essentially, sounds like. That the russian government completely falls apart and,
0: and they no, are just absolutely
2: with playing with a bomb fire here there's no reason in the world to think that they could get away with that
1: yeah it's crazy man and now we see Zelensky saying that same thing that he's not going to reach peace until putin's out of office like calling for regime change it's uh yep. it's fucking crazy man and shifting gears a little bit here like that We're supposedly supposed to be up in arms about Russia invading Ukraine. And like you said at the beginning, that, yeah, that's it's fucking terrible. There's a lot of innocent people dying because Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, But no one gives a shit right now about what's going on in Yemen. You know, we got the U.S. is actually facilitating, you know, the Saudi Arabian regime carrying out genocide where we're talking hundreds of thousands of children have already died you know, U.S. airstrikes, uh, U.S. bombs have been given to Saudi Arabia, sold like th- tens of thousands of them, leading to one of the largest humanitarian crises in history. And here we are, everybody's putting Ukraine flags in their bios. Where's Where are the flags for Yemen, man?
2: Yeah, well, if only the Russians were bombing them. I saw someone had labeled a map of Saudi Arabia and Yemen and just labeled Saudi Arabia, Russia and Yemen, Ukraine and said, we got to help these people. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. See if you can get people involved that way. It's not like they have any idea where Ukraine is. You show them Yemen and tell them it's Ukraine. <sighs> oh, you know. OK, I don't know. Um, but look, that's right. I mean, look, there's no question that. The level of danger in the Ukraine war for all of us. Is makes it absolutely the most important thing in the world, the potential there is it's not that we're at great, like, high risk of having nuclear exchange. That's still a low risk. But it's higher than before. And the consequences of it actually coming true would be so devastating. It's beyond your imagination. Okay? I mean, look at the pictures. I actually have a guy had sent me... I'm not allowed to share them because uh, he's got no copyright, no official copyright on them and whatever. I had to promise I would not publish them or share them with anyone. But a guy sent me these massive high resolution panorama shots of Hiroshima that his grandfather took right after uh, the bombing in World War II. And you are talking about a city completely flattened. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Man, that was a 15 kiloton bomb. That's nothing. You know, there are the the typical American bombs detonate in the 60 to 70 kiloton range. And some of them go up into the megatons. Many of the Russian strategic nuclear weapons also go up into the megatons. So we're talking about a bomb that could take out all of Houston like Hiroshima, all of Dallas in one shot, enough to destroy Manhattan and the five boroughs and kill everyone and destroy everything. Just one or two megatons would do you. And so not to just be too alarmist because again I'm not saying that the risk is now very high and that we're be lucky to make it through the new year's and whatever I you know I'm not that much of an alarmist frankly and I I think that there are all the same incentives that you and I are talking about right now are the reasons why our politicians on all sides would also like to not have a thermonuclear war and that those true. those reasons do weigh very heavy they know At the same time, though, these things have not nuclear wars so far, but wars in general have a way of starting somewhat unintentionally or spiraling out of control in a way that people did not anticipate. And there have been so many mistakes made where, you know, you have a flock of condors or whatever damn giant birds coming over the pole. And the Russian computers think, that, or the American computers think, that it's an incoming first-strike salvo of H-bombs. You've had that happen before. You've had just bad microchips in Russian computers telling them that America has just launched a first-strike. You've had, in America, they had a training exercise tape that was still stuck in the computer, and they were certain that we were being nuked. The computer said that we are being newt. And it took them, I don't know, 17 minutes or something before some idiot realized that they had the wrong tape in the machine. And this kind of close call, the Norwegians in 93, they called the Russians and they were like, hey, hey, be cool, we're launching a missile or a rocket into space, a satellite, but don't panic, it's just a satellite. And the Russians were like, okay, cool, roger that. But then the bureaucracy broke down. And the message did not get through to everyone who was supposed to get the message. And so when the Norwegians launched the rocket, a significant portion of the Russian military establishment believed that Moscow was being targeted with a first strike H-bomb hit and went to DEFCON, whatever, and almost went to nuclear war right then. And there are two different ones. Well, there are three different ones. There are two different ones in Russia where it's some colonel who goes, nah, I'm not going to do my job. I refuse to do my job. I don't believe the satellite. I don't believe the computer. The computer's telling me one thing, but I need confirmation. I'm waiting till I hear, see a flash and hear a loud bang. I'm just not going to do it. And the one guy, Stanley Stanislav or whatever the hell his name, he told the story of how if if he had passed on, I'm getting to Yemen, sorry. If he had passed on the warning to his bosses, they would have launched the rockets. We'd have gone to thermonuclear war. They would not have gone, oh, geez, I don't know, no, 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 no. They were not that kind of men. If he had done his job, he was like a lowly lieutenant colonel or whatever. If he had done his job and passed the information up the chain of command, they would have launched the H-bombs. And he essentially just refused to do his job. He was absolutely insubordinate. There were two like that, where it was the Russian guy who like gummed up the works and stopped the mistake from being acted on. Then another one was in the Cuban Missile Crisis. When the Americans were dropping death charges... But the depth charges were, they were warning depth charges, not kill you depth charges. You dummy, you can't tell the difference. (laughs) The warning depth charges we set off at X depth. The kill you depth charges we set off at Y depth. And surely they understand that. We're just trying to force them to surface, not to kill them. Well, guess what? They didn't understand that. They were being depth charged, and they thought that we were trying to kill them. And it was a nuclear submarine. And the commanding officer and his subordinate, right-hand man, they agreed it was time to launch an atom bomb at the surface fleet, a a torpedo, to take out the American surface fleet. And it just so happened that out of all the subs, all the Russian uh, Soviet subs during that time, one of them, this sub, happened to be the one that had a Communist Party official on board. And the rule was all three of them had to agree. And so the Communist Party apparatchik said, no, I don't think so. Well, we know now if they had set off that atom bomb, America would have absolutely invaded Cuba and maybe nuked Moscow right away. But if they'd invaded Cuba, we now know and did not know then that the Cubans already had short range missiles operational, ready to go, ready to take out our Marines on the beaches or our our troop ships crossing from the keys to Cuba out at sea. And of course, if that had happened, there would have been absolute full scale, thermal nuclear war between America and the Soviet Union. So you have essentially, you know, one flunky, one commie flunky goes, nah, saves humanity. (laughs) So those kinds of close calls have happened over and over again. And look, you know, the Americans brag that, Anybody launches a rocket anywhere in the world, we can see it. Our satellites will indicate anything going on anywhere. We got total omniscient bird's eye view over the Russian military. They are completely pwned. But they don't have that capability. If you ask the Americans, it's like, ha ha. Yeah, we have such a big advantage over them. But look, think of it again from their point of view. They're kind of blind. They have some satellites. And they have some early warning radar systems up in the Arctic and, you know, out at sea somewhere, but they have anything like the early warning capability that we have? No. So that means their trigger finger is that much itchier. Their assumption, their like negative interpretation of signals and events is therefore like turned up higher because they got more at risk. They are more concerned that they could lose everything in a first strike and not even be able to retaliate. And it seems like that's the position that our government is trying to put them in, trying to nullify MAD by ringing their country with anti-missile missiles and then forcing them to ratchet up their spending in response and all of that. So um, it is a very dangerous time. When people say this is as bad as it's been since 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think that's right. You know, there's very high tensions in the early 80s. Until Ronald Reagan saw the movie the day after and and had nightmares about it and said, that's the real history of it. Reagan saw in that movie, they depict what it would be like to see a hydrogen bomb war in the American Midwest. And he couldn't sleep and was like freaked out about it. And then luckily Gorbachev came to power right around then or a year later or something. And Reagan decided that he had been commanded by God to abolish nuclear weapons. And he almost did it. 1986 at Reykjavik. They almost had a deal to abolish all of the nuclear weapons. Um, And the reason that it fell apart was because of Reagan's naive insistence on the Star Wars program, which was a joke, which could have never worked anyway. Um, Not for $10 trillion, but um, his government essentially manipulated him into killing the deal. But that was the last time that tensions were anything close to this high. And it's true that we don't have like in the Cuban Missile Crisis where we are now installing nuclear missiles, right, you know, ninety miles from uh, their shore and this kind of thing. Although we already have, you know, nuclear missiles or nuclear bombs stationed all over Europe for our planes to drop, not missiles. And we got cruise missiles on our ships and submarines at sea. So, um well, I don't know, on our surface ships, certainly our subs. Um, so anyway, um, The tension has been way ratcheted up here. And if you look at, um, I like the way Pat Buchanan puts this, I think best, is look at a map of Europe and recognize that in the Cold War, we had drawn the line halfway across Germany at the Elbe River and said, listen, you commies, if you come west of the Elbe River, it's on. So don't. Well, now we've drawn that line. We've taken that same line. We didn't get rid of the line. You might have thought we're friends with the Russians now. No, we didn't get rid of that line. We just moved the line 1,200 miles east all the way to their border. And not only have they brought the Baltic states into NATO, they've tried twice to overthrow the government of Belarus in 2005 and in 2020. Or was it 21? I'm sorry. I got to get my footnotes straight in my head about that. Remember the one where the husband went to jail and they were trying to promote the wife and all of that in Belarus? I mean, this is, um, well, like, like we were saying earlier, if they're having special forces training in Mexico, right? what if the Russians were overthrowing the government in Ottawa, in Canada, and twice in 10 years when they wouldn't vote our way, and threatening to kick us out of our naval bases in Alaska, and declaring war against the people of British Columbia out there in Vancouver and so forth for refusing to go along with it all? I mean, how would America react to this? It's completely crazy. And they're so self-righteous. So this is one of the things you asked me at the beginning. I don't know, man. I ramble a lot, but I do. I really think that as much as it's all the corruption and the money and the foreign influence and all of these things that, you know, it's a religion in a secular age for people to worship the state and its power and its ability to, you know, to vindicate, right, to absolve and to save. And it's all like it has its all its own little kind of religious catechisms and whatever the hell. And I think, you know, to me, the avatar is not Jesus. It's Superman. Right. Like Christopher Reeve, Superman, the virgin Boy Scout, never tells a lie and truth, justice in the American way. And yes, he does shoot lasers out of his eyes, but only ever to like cut a branch off a tree to save a drowning lady. (laughs) <laughs> and or to save a kitten from a tree who surely would starve up there, you know, or whatever. So um I believe it, I think it's so easy, especially for the American government. And look at Joe Biden and his council. And these are the kinds of people who do not stop and say, Hey man, are we really right? Because this is getting pretty dangerous. You know what I mean? They're not they're not the kind of people who would do that. They're the kind of people who are so sure about how smart they are and how right they are and what level of risk is tolerable or not. And again, it was Biden and Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland. it was Biden's team. They were the ones who overthrew the government back in 2014.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it isn't like it's the Trump team where if they were smart enough, they could just blame the problem on the Democrats and say, it's not our fault. The Democrats got us into this or whatever it is. They're the ones who got us into this. And they can never admit it. Not one of them is man enough to say, hey, look, even to themselves, right? Hey, Jake Sullivan, come here, man. I was getting drunk last night and I was thinking to myself that like, man, maybe we kind of shouldn't have overthrown the government back in 2014 and none of this would have happened. And maybe we need to find a way that, of course, Putin is still the worst man in the world since Hitler. But like, we did kind of put him in this position, right? Like, they're just not going to, that conversation is not happening. And with that, for them to be that obstinate and, and to be, you know, to have just that level of, um, of, uh, you know, a lack of self-awareness, a deliberate lack of self-awareness, I think does put us in an incredibly dangerous position that like, you know, they're saying that the goal here is Russia absolutely has to lose 100%. They must leave whatever it takes, as long as it takes. But then the Russians' position is they absolutely cannot lose a complete and humiliating defeat. I mean, you know, even the goal is, has gone as far as they've said, as far as driving them out of Crimea, which they've held since 14. Um, This kind of thing. So they have essentially an irresistible force and the unmovable object, right? And and here Biden says, look, we're as close to Armageddon. That's the president of the United States' words. We're as close to Armageddon as we've been since 62. But it's all the other guy's fault because of him, because of his people and because of his sins and because of his badness and no recognition. In fact, some recognition goes, well, we need to start looking at off-ramps that we can give him. And it's like, yeah, but... We already know what those off-ramps are. Neutrality for Kiev. Forget about Crimea and negotiate at least a very special status for Donbass and mean it. They got to have statehood. They have to have hard federalism and autonomy and a real vow of protection. Um, and so that's the Minsk 2 deal, ultimately, the one that they could have abided by since 2015 but never did. And, and those are essentially the term. Now, I got to tell you, though, now that Putin has outright, you know, a, officially at least annexed Kherson and Zaprosia, and this is like all of little Russia now. So um, for him to give up all that and say, okay, fine, you can keep Kherson and Zaprosia, but I'm keeping the Donbass. I mean, boy, talk about bargaining chips. But at this point, like, I don't and I, frankly I don't know if he's willing to back down from there now. That's a huge step forward that he took there in essentially just with semantics with language. He has now upped the ante of the war tremendously by officially annexing these two additional oblasts. So we need a real change in in how we're discussing this subject and our entire approach to this subject in this country because Right now, it's essentially, you know, they say sleepwalking or autopilot or whatever. In other words, thoughtlessly marching behind our political government toward Armageddon.
1: Certainly, man. And that's why, like, I don't see this solution coming from the state at all. Like, I don't know what what their move is to be able to 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 deescalate this, you know, like. We always ask our guests, like, what do you think the solution could be? Like, not like a state solution, not a government imposed solution. But what do you think a solution is to all this? I know that um, I talked to you in July whenever you had started the uh, 800 stop war campaign for Yemen. And it seems like that that's gotten a lot of traction. You know, that kind of got people together. It got both sides, like left and right and anarchists and like communists and socialists all together to, to try to push to stop that war. Like, <clears throat> and I know that is using government, but it's actually, it's a massive campaign of people actively calling into the, to their elected officials and telling them that they're not going to vote for them anymore if they don't, you know, do yeah. something to stop these wars. What, what do you think is going to stop, what do you think we're can we going to have to do to be able to de-escalate this thing in Russia without it actually going nuclear, you know, no pun intended, and, or even or ground war, you know?
2: I, well, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I, the problem is there's so many issues, and the god and culture war just divides everyone along all the wrong lines, and so it, will it be clear? Like, for example, uh, the Republicans take the House and or the Senate next month, and then the question will be, well, was it like the the America First or anti-war with Russia guys do way better than the typical George W. Bush hawks? And really, a lot of the America First guys are real hawks on Russia and China, too. I mean, what does America First mean? They're
1: they're ready to go to war with China. They're,
2: and- like, <laughs> they're not yeah they're not members of george w bush's country club but they're the kinds of people who supported his right. war anyway back then and would fall for the damn same thing again right now in a lot of time, in a lot of cases um but like you know if joe kent wins by some super you know a huge number some gigantic landslide and he gets up there and says like i am now the leader of the new generation and we hate this damn war want to do something about it and he wants to take it on like that, something like that. That's our best hope as far as Congress goes would be to have somebody like Kent who's willing to fight about it. And He's kind of bad on a couple of things. I think he's bad on Iran and China. I don't know. I think I've heard him say some pretty good stuff about Russia. The question is, is he the guy who's going to say like, no, that's it. I've had it. I don't care if I'm a freshman. I don't care if you want to hear it or not. We're squabbling about this. Here's a line in the sand. Choose your side and let's rumble. Like if he's willing to do that or somebody like him is willing to do that, then that's what it's going to take. Um, and there's just nobody like that on the Democrat side whatsoever. And even, you know, Thomas Massey has said some good things. I don't know if it's within his purview, if he can introduce this, that or the other thing. I guess he could try to introduce a war powers resolution on Ukraine, um, something like that. It'd be nice if he tried. but otherwise. You know, the partisanship here is so powerful, the way that even though Russiagate was debunked, you can't tell liberals that. They don't know that. So to them, you know, this whole thing is maybe even as part of why they hated Trump so much Is Trump was a stand in for Putin, who they were already kind of rallying against. You know, he's this right wing Christian and he's put out an anti-gay propaganda law and he criticizes the way that America goes around doing their culture war around the world and this kind of stuff. And so it's like easy to internationalize the culture war. So you have all the liberals who should be anti-war who should be reflexively anti Pentagon. Of course, everybody likes the soldiers, but we should all mistrust the officers. Come on. And the liberals, I mean, modern American liberalism is somewhat still the descendant of the new left from the Vietnam era. And they pretty much just abandon, you know, war because it's a right wing enemy. And, uh, you know, as a war as an issue because it's a right wing enemy. So what it's going to take to rally them. And then, of course, right wingers love being tough guys and love being hawks and love being militarists and all the macho stuff. So it's pretty hard to get them to turn against something like this,
0: too. Yeah, I mean, two days ago, a group of, what, 30 House Democrats retracted a letter that they sent to Biden, urging him to seek direct talks with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. And in the letter, they urged Biden to pair the military and economic aid the United States has provided to Ukraine with the efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire, as well as engage in direct talks with Russia to seek a rapid end to the conflict. But now they're claiming that that letter was drafted months ago and was released by staff without vetting, which is, you know, probably a fabrication.
2: Oh, it's so embarrassing. I'm just, but then man, yeah,
0: the, the Wall Street Journal, you know, is now finally admitting, I mean, we've been wondering for six months now, how many billions have that actually been sent to Ukraine? Of course, we had our own estimates, but the Wall Street Journal is finally admitting that 65 billion has been sent in aid to Ukraine and Biden and the Democratic Party leaders say that any peace talks or terms of ceasefire should be driven by Ukraine's government. But like, what incentive would they have to initiate peace talks when they're getting like billions and billions in funding and military equipment and and very- It's just
2: like Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll we'll negotiate with the Taliban, but we got to negotiate only in a tripartite deal with the Kabul government that of course doesn't want to deal with the Taliban because they want to keep the war going so they can keep us there to keep them in power. So they have no incentive to negotiate whatsoever, and they didn't. And as long as Bush and Obama insisted that we won't negotiate with the Taliban unless Kabul is included, they got absolutely nowhere. The only reason Trump was able to make a deal with the Taliban is he said Kabul can go to hell, dude. They're not
0: part of this. Right. It seems like so they are like outsourcing
2: their officially. If you listen to the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, he's like, hey, 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 any negotiation that's up to Zelensky. Really? When we pay not just for his military, but we paid ten billion dollars just for propping up his civilian government too. The war, never mind that he would have negotiated. Hell, he'd have just lost if it hadn't have been for the U.S. this entire time. But we're in no position whatsoever to tell him to negotiate. Never even mind the idea of telling him, you can stay home, we're negotiating with or without you, which we have every ability and right to do at this point and responsibility to do at this point. Because again, this is America's war. These people say that the war was unprovoked. Unprovoked, 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 unprovoked. Like they're all hypnotized and we're all supposed to be hypnotized. I just have to say that. Reminds me of white separatist Randy Weaver. Well, how come it's not father of a dead little boy and decapitated innocent woman, Randy Weaver? No, it's white separatist Randy Weaver. That's his first name is white. And then his middle names are separatist and Randy. And his last name is Weaver. Not innocent victim Randy Weaver. Not poor and trapped son of a bitch Randy Weaver. White separatist Randy Weaver. Same thing with the war. Same thing, like Saddam Hussein's spider hole. Well, he was in a hole in the ground. But why is it a spider hole? How come it's not a foxhole? How come it's not just a damn hole? No, it's a spider hole. Why? Because the military told the TV to tell you that you have to call it that. And then that becomes the measure of whether you're a good person who's in on the common narrative or not. It's a spider hole. Yeah, back when they found Saddam in his spider hole. Which is funny because they were acting like they'd found bin Laden. But oh, well, whatever. We got somebody anyway. Same thing here. Unprovoked attack. Unprovoked attack. Well, what does that tell you? Of course they provoked it and they're lying to you and they're trying to like suborn you in on their lie and get you to repeat their lie and make it your own. Unprovoked attack. Come on. Like it was just a surprise and no one has any idea what was going on here. And Russia didn't propose a treaty with 17 points right before the war and say, look, if you sign my treaty, I won't attack. And it sounds like there was something that he was complaining about. Let's read the treaty and see what it says. You might call some of the things that he's saying he wants to negotiate an end to provocations like. 14,000 dead in Donbass over the last seven years in a ceasefire deal that was signed in 2015 that was never implemented by the USA-Kiev side. You know, that sounds like a provocation to me. And it was clear the Russians said all along that they consider it one. And of course, there's a million of them. And hell, there's this Wall Street Journal article. Do I still have it open here? I might have closed it. Let me see, I might still have it. I just closed it, but I bet it's in my recently closed tab here. We got this Wall Street Journal. Oh, it's not recently in. But it's about how, no, look, we should risk war in Ukraine. It's worth it. Who cares? Let's tell Russia you better not, but let's not negotiate in good faith whatsoever because if he does invade ukraine good it'll cost him a lot of money and a lot of prestige and it'll weaken his country and it's the smart thing to do they wrote you know they were talking this way in december of last year and january of this year
1: so back to to yemen Yemen. (laughs) i keep bringing up yemen just because there's been some some Ground made in Yemen, right? We're we're seeing a little bit of that's why that whole Russia thing was just a parenthesis because I was going to say the actual worst thing in the world is Yemen, not
2: Ukraine. Ukraine is just potentially the worst thing in the right. world. So consider the last twenty minutes of me babbling to be like in brackets there and then. <laughs> well, no, man. That's to answer your to question, question the- yeah, the worst war. You're right. That's not hyperbole when you say hundreds of thousands of children have been killed. That's correct. Hundreds of thousands of them, mostly deprived to death um, starved to death or, you know, uh, died of easily treatable diseases because they're so malnourished and sick and have no clean drinking water and all this kind of thing.
1: Right. And there's this the most
2: powerful country in world history versus the weakest country on the face of the earth.
1: There's been some, uh, some progress, right. Uh, with the one, eight, three, three stop war. Yeah, And I, didn't you guys like recently acquire that from whoever was running it before?
2: No, 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 no. So here's, okay. So here's the deal with that. First of all, there is a ceasefire sort of. Now, the ceasefire has officially expired, but it's more or less, you know, the fighting has not really started back up. There have been some violations here and there, but it's not really that it's restarted. So. um, We do have this effort to pass the War Powers Resolutions, which have been introduced by some Democrats and there are 114 co-sponsors, including Massey and some of the uh, Gates and uh, MGT or TG or whatever, and some of those other kind of Trumpian people. Uh, have supported it, I believe. Um, and it would make the war not just unconstitutional, but illegal. It would, it would ban Biden from uh, continuing to support the Saudi and UAE war effort in Yemen at all. And it doesn't end the war against AQAP. I admit that. But it only ends the war for them, which we've been fighting for the last seven years, which is far, far worse. As you've talked about we we yes. discussed, hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties in this thing that makes the war on terrorism look like an ICU unit i mean in comparison so um
1: definitely i, mean, I wanted to man. ask you like so this 833 stop war campaign it seemed to be pretty decent like i i've called it several times and and yeah. um one of the time like the the aid or whatever was like familiar with it you know it was like oh you know okay oh, i
2: so here's what it is. That website, yes, about right. that website. It's it's a it's a uh, nonpartisan progressive group called Demand Progress. Right. They're not like slaves to the Democrats and they're not like too far commie. They're just essentially progressives and good principled anti-war people. And they host that site, 833 Stop War. It's actually one eight three three stop war. What I did Was I just bought the URL 833 Uh, stop war and made it forward because it's just easier to say without the stupid one in there.
1: Right. You know, I was thinking Um, maybe we could, you know, like help wage a new campaign against the Ukraine war as well, you know, and see and see to get the US to stop funding that. Maybe we could have some success by doing something similar like that, you know, like that.
2: That's a good idea, man. That's a good idea. And hmm. I wonder. Oh, I. I wonder if the Institute could do that. Maybe we just buy a number that's sort of like that 866 stop war. And we'll just set that up to all be about.
1: Well, that's what makes this one so powerful, right? Because it has demand progress. It has code pink. It has action court has labor against racism award has peace. act, It has all these left groups, you know, um, that like hard left groups, even on some of them, you know, And, and when the libertarian party started to promote that, it was a, a huge deal you had like far left far right all coming together to stop this and I think something like that a massive movement to, to to that we could do to like a campaign to like to raise awareness to what's going on in Ukraine right now I think that's also necessary yeah. okay. <clears throat> let's do it dude. and uh yeah before you before you go on I wanted to, you know uh it's getting close to the time where we wrap up here you know we usually wrap up around the hour mark and I wanted to just remind our readers about uh about your book enough already you know which i showed you before the show that i have a signed copy here on my desk and um it recently came out in audio form uh it's called enough already and if it was like one of the most prophetic books and had we listened to this shit and stopped you know it was like a guidebook to how to how to not continue this forever war you know and
2: there's even a bit about Russia right. in there, yeah,
1: <laughs> and that's why that's like listeners. That's why Scott is so passionate about this. He's he's been doing this for a very long time. I mean, he needs no introduction or anything like that. Um, but Scott, yeah, I would like to, you know, on in closing here, um, you know, there's the there's the a three three stop thing. There's the chance that the the anti-war right might take over Congress. How the fuck do we stop the annihilation of human species by the military industrial complex and fucking create a peaceful society for all of us to live in?
2: Well, look, I mean, it's up to libertarians to lead the left and the right. We can't turn, turn everyone into libertarians, but we can help them prioritize because we're the only ones who are good on everything. So if you, you know, if you're a good leftist, we're better than you on the stuff you're good on. Same thing for the right. And so but instead of just hitting them over the head, it's a matter of like helping them set their priorities to lead. And this is especially for people leaning right in this audience. I mean, remember what was so special about Ron Paul is the irony and the contrast, right? It was the meme. It would say at the top, it would go Republican congressman. And then at the bottom would say the only vote for peace or it would, or whatever it was, conservative Republican for legalizing drugs or what and it was you know because here he is he's married to his high school sweetheart no scandals he's a doctor not a lawyer he's a conservative christian but doesn't beat you over the head with it kind of thing but you can tell that he is sincere in his beliefs and his principles and he then and, and he's the kind of guy who never says a bad word you know and then but he's got these radical politics, abolish our entire monetary system and replace it with a different one. Nothing abolish the Pentagon. We could defend this cup, this country with a couple of good submarines, um, completely, you know, repeal the 20th century, the 21st and the 20th too, and, and reduce the power of the national government way back to unbelievable level, pre new deal levels, pre Woodrow Wilson levels in this country, something like that. Um, and and with a voting record to prove it, and based all on morality, right? Based on libertarian first principle. Everybody's an individual born free. This is what it's all about. And so you have what seemed like this ironic contrast at first, and then you realize that, no, dude, this is the unified field theory of human liberty here. This is the right answer. And so, and then even if you don't buy into the whole Ron Paul thing, you know he's a good dude, and you know that he's right about this and he's right about that and whatever, even if you're not willing to change your whole self into one of his guys or something like that. You might be willing, if his guys are really you know, controlling the narrative and leading um, on all these issues, it might be something that people can believe in and get behind. And so I think the ultimate example then, of course, is right-wingers. Uh, conservatives and libertarians and especially combat veterans of these wars. We need you guys to be out in front on peace, right? We're for guns and abolishing the empire. We're for capitalism and abolishing the empire. We're for the constitution and the flag and so many of you guys are veterans of the military and proud of it for, to whatever degrees, you know, depending on whatever service you were involved in as part of it and for abolishing the empire. We can't keep doing this. You want to save the Republic. You've got to get rid of this American militarism. And when you have people like Dan McKnight and his team at bring our troops home.us, you look at those guys Dan McKnight ain't Noam Chomsky in a turtleneck sweater from his perch at MIT being, you know, a soft-handed leftist theoretician. Dan McKnight's been to Warren back. He's not asking you. He's telling you. This is wrong. We're not going to do this anymore because it's wrong, and that's it. And so, and and he, he doesn't look or talk like a leftist or a liberal because he ain't one. And so, for other right-leaning people, Ron Paulian and libertarian and conservative anti-war guys, you want a team to get with, bring our troops home.us, the guys leading the Defend the Guard movement, which again, constitutional nullification and interposition, the Jeffersonian way, the Madisonian way of defeating militarism in America under our old law of the old US constitution, what's left of it. and and operating in that context. That's the kind of thing that, as the leftists would say, is like culture jamming, right? Figuring out a way to just break their damn narrative. Hell, look at it right now, like we've been talking about. It's the liberals, who are all a bunch of pussies, who are none of them are any good in a fight anyway. And they're the war hawks now? It used to be that the right-wingers could write them off. Of course you guys are anti-war. None of you guys are any good in a fight anyway. But now we got to get lectured to about why to support war by them. And and all the conservatives got to sit there and take it. We got to be able to take control of these narratives as libertarians to. In that Ron Paulian way, in that ironic and positive way, confuse the issue to provide that enlightenment to people. Why would a conservative Texas Republican congressman be more anti-war than any leftist you ever heard talk before. You know, there must be a damn good reason. Right? And there is. Exactly. And so why would Dan McKnight be anti-war? There must be a damn good reason. Yeah, listen to the man. And so that's the answer to your question, dude, is it's going to take every single person on the right. Hell, I'll put it to you this way. If the right-wing patriot movement, like the conspiracy theory, militia, patriotic, patri- or not patriotic, but, you know, patriot movement, as it was called, of the 1990s. If they had all, instead of being the conspiracy tar chasing the missile hit the Pentagon front, if they had been the anti-war, or Saddam did not do 9-11 front, they could have stopped the war. It was just hippies opposed it but if, they, if the patriots cuz so many of the patriots they were vietnam veterans and they're right wing i mean they still got their flag jackets and their american flags and their boots, and they do believe in Jesus. They are conservative American Republican Christians, but none of them believed in W. Bush. All of them were way, way, way too educated and cynical. You mean George Bush's son, the biggest drug dealer in world history, that guy? You know what? They didn't believe in that stuff. Skull and bones, boy, we're not going to follow him into war. They didn't believe in W. Bush. They could have been the don't fall for this front, the anti-war right. And 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 that would have been their slogan. We're conservative, Christian, Republicans, Texans, and we love guns, and we don't even mind war, but this war is a damn lie. And we know better than to believe in this scumbag George Bush who's lying right to our face and whatever. If they had done that, if they had shown up and got at the front of those liberal protests and let them, that could have made the difference to stop the war right there. Maybe not, but that's what they should have tried to do, and that's what the right wing should be doing now. Anyone on the right who knows better than this stuff, this should be your priority. This is the worst thing about America, man. And it's and it's the as James Madison himself said, it's the germ of every other thing that's wrong with America. Debt's, taxes, offices of government job holders. All stems from American militarism. We gotta knock it off, and you guys got to lead on it.
1: Hell yeah, man! Here, here!
0: All right, free thinkers, we are near the end of the podcast. That means we need you to take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We have brilliant and amazing guests who are changing the world every single week. All you have to do is hit that subscribe button. Also, take a moment to rate it as well. This gets our podcast into more people's feeds. And hey, guys, real quick, as most of you know, we've been targeted by big tech censorship for years now and even lost nearly 6 million fans when Facebook and Twitter took us down. It's getting harder and harder to continue doing this work without your financial support. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you took any value from it, please consider donating or subscribing to the membership. If you can't subscribe, check out our t-shirts and merch at the Free Thought Project store tab at the top of the site. We can't do it without you. Thank you, Freethinkers
1: uh scott man tell everybody where they can find you and like where they can go if they want to get involved with this and uh all your urls and anything else you want to plug uh before we wrap up here man
2: sure well thank you guys very much again for uh having me on and hearing me out and all that especially the way i ramble it is always a pleasure dude
1: i love your rants man
2: (laughs) so um listen i'm at scotthorton.org that's my show i got 5,800 interviews going back to 2003 for you at scotthorton.org. Also proof that I'm right about everything. Um, (laughs) And I got books. I got um, two that are essentially interviews. One of them is Ron Paul, the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton Show interviews 2004 through 2019, which I'm very proud of. And uh, the new one is Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which is really about all aspects of nuclear weapons. Uh, Interviews of all different experts um, on, uh, it's like 450 pages of, all great. And, you know, for a book of transcripts, I mean, it's really good. I'm proud of that one, too. It's really great. Hotter Than the Sun. And then uh, the two that I wrote are Fool's Errand, "Time in the War in Afghanistan, which maybe I need to, like, redo the cover art and call it a real history of the war in Afghanistan or something like that. Um, but anyway, I wrote it because I was that was the point I was trying to make, even though that's not really what the book is about, you know, but I was trying to add to that argument. Anyway, and then uh, enough already, as you mentioned, enough already, time to end the war on terrorism. And that's my history of all the Middle East interventions from Jimmy Carter through Donald Trump. And how one thing led to another and all of that. And Noam Chomsky and Colonel Douglas McGregor both endorsed it. So how do you like that? Wow.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that that's funny? awesome.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so um, and then. Oh, and I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, which is the most important project on the internet. And all the credit there goes to uh, Eric Garris, Dave DeCamp, Kyle Anselone, Connor Freeman, and all of our great writers um, at antiwar.com. And then I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, which is also, yes, we're all very stuck on foreign policy, but we've got a lot of uh, other great stuff too. And we feature Sheldon Richman, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, and then of course, Kyle Anselone, Keith Knight, patrick mcfarlane tommy salmons and myself and a lot of great other writers and podcasters and all kinds of stuff and that's libertarianinstitute.org.
1: you can find some aggregated free thought project articles on there from time to time too (laughs) that's right dude scott thank you man for coming on here your insight into all this stuff is is extremely valuable and
2: hey, before we go can i tell you guys how much i love the free thought project i mean you guys Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah and in fact matt i'm still um got to keep after you that like i know that some things changed around and whatever but um i got unsigned up from your daily email and i used to essentially get angry and post a link to you guys site every single afternoon (laughs) on twitter um because of uh, the daily outrages and what a great job you guys do covering them i really do feel like you guys are picking up my slack like if I could just do state.com and be the editorial director, <laughs> too, I would. But I just I'm spread too thin as it is, man. Oh, I should have mentioned, I'm writing a book called Provoked, America's Role in the Russia Ukraine War right now with um, Daryl Cooper, the great podcaster, Martyr Maid, who you may
1: know. Um, That's awesome, man. Of course you But are. Anyway, I
2: do. I really, really am grateful for you guys and the work that you guys are doing. I know you do foreign policy stuff, too, but your heavy emphasis on police abuse and tackling all those issues from the libertarian take instead of a leftist take again it's so important that we're leading on this stuff and by we i mean you guys so um thank you very much for all of your great work there at the free thought project thank you brother. thank you, you for saying that man. man yeah yeah
0: thanks
2: yeah. So. yeah dude you all great.